Roll up, roll up, and welcome back to the James Kennedy Podcast, episode number 21, man. How are you doing? You doing good? You feeling good? You enjoying the sunshine? Are you unable to sleep like I am? Do you spend eight months of the year complaining about the rain, and then when you get two days of sunshine, you complain about being hot? God bless you. Me too. Me too. I hope you enjoyed the episode last week talking with Nathan Stilwell from My Death, My Decision. Um, I got a lot of messages off the back of that one and it seemed to really resonate with a lot of people, which is always a good thing. So I'm glad that the episode was well received. We are kind of sticking on the same theme today, except we're talking about the afterlife. We're talking about digital immortality, artificial sentience, robots, and is it possible to live forever? You know, they're working on it, man. Those 1% trillionaires, they've been working on the immortality game for decades, at least. Trying to cheat death, you know? The latest development in that area seems to be this thing where they're digitizing the contents of somebody's brain, downloading it, with the aim of one day being able to upload it again into some kind of physical avatar, like a robot or a machine, or a hologram or something like that, that would effectively emulate the person. Very much in the same way that the human body is merely a a temporary vessel for the experience of life. I guess they're hoping that by digitizing the contents of one's brain, their personality, their loves, their hopes, their dreams, their desires, their opinions, their thoughts, their creativity. If you can digitize all of that and then, you know, just re-upload that into a new temporary vessel, then essentially the same thing, right? But because it's digital and not housed inside an organic matter such as the brain, which decays and dies one day, you can essentially live forever, is the thought behind it. You in your digital form, living on inside a metallic or holographic eternal vessel. Would you want that? Would you want that for your loved ones? Interesting shit, no? Personally, scares the shit out of me. But it's damn interesting stuff. And that's why I'm super excited to have onto the show today the awesome Maggie Savin Baden, who's written extensively on this subject and knows the score. But before we jump in, I'm going to do my weekly nag. Have you subscribed to the MoFo podcast, man? Come on, dude, get on it. And hit those stars, baby. Give me that star rating. Let the platforms know what's going down over here so they can push it out to more people for me to brainwash. Now, let's do it. Maggie Savin Baden is a professor of education at the University of Worcester, where she has been since 2014. She has published a staggering 21 books, as well as over 60 peer-reviewed journals. She has written widely on the subjects of digital immortality and artificial intelligence. And whilst I'm completely out of my depth, I cannot wait to find out what it's all about. So Maggie, thanks so much for spending time with us today. How are you doing? Thank you very much indeed. Uh, yeah, very well, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. It's good to be able to talk about this stuff in a, in a podcast. Oh, well, I can't wait, man. I'm fascinated by this stuff. So thanks so much for coming on today. Um, apologies in advance because I'll be very enthusiastic despite not knowing what the hell I'm talking about. So I'm just putting the apologies out there <laughs> now. And um, before we jump in, uh, what I usually ask people to do, if you, if you don't mind, is just to give people a quick rundown as to who you are and what your credentials are and all that before we jump into it. So uh, who is Maggie Savin Baden and what's going on? Uh, yeah, I mean, maybe it's good for your listeners to know to start with that the reason I got so interested in research and in learning was because I failed at school. And because I failed mm. at school, I had to kind of fight my way back. And so I finished my PhD at the University of London in uh, when I was 36 years old. So I've kind of gone on from there, really. So I'm fascinated by learning. And that was my starting point. And then over the years, I was quite interested in learning in different spaces. 
which began with work when Second Life, the virtual world, became popular. And that was really the starting point for getting interested in virtual humans. Well, look at you now, you know, Professor of Education at Worcester University. You haven't done too bad. <laughs> no. No, and, and I discovered in the process of all of this that I quite like writing. So, Well, I can tell. I mean, Jesus, 21 books. And <laughs> <laughs> doing research. So that's what I do. So, yeah, my work started with um, putting chatbots, which are sort of pretend people. You may have seen something on the IKEA website, yes. I suppose. Right. I had a push you could call Siri uh, chatbot, but they can be quite limited, really. I don't know if you've ever noticed that once you get past seven questions, Siri gets a bit stuck. Right. If you haven't, you should try it. <laughs> so we were, we put some chatbots in virtual worlds to see how students responded to them and then went on from there to do all sorts of things, hide chatbots in seminars to see if students notice them with ethical permission, of course. But from <laughs> that grew the work on creating copies of people. So we had some uh, funded money, and it was to create different levels of chatbots or pedagogical agents or whatever you want to call them, from the basic Siri kind of thing, teach me maths, through to a copy of Virtual Barry. So we took all of Barry's emails and his friends, and we interviewed people, and we created a copy of Barry, and we called him Virtual Barry. And we wanted to see how realistic people thought he was. So we did that over about a year. And then a few summers ago, we wanted to see if we could quit, create something quite quickly. I was working with a company called Dayden in Birmingham at the time. And so they created a virtual Maggie within about three weeks. Wow, that is awesome. And so what does that entail then? Is that similar to what you were just describing with the chatbots? Is it, does it function very much the same way as that, where it's text orientated? Um, or it, does it have a physical element to it as well? Yeah, the ones we created, which we called a virtual persona in the end, those were kind of use my head and we lip synced behind me. Wow. And um, put all quite a bit of my data behind it. And I got, I do triathlons and running. So I got some of my mates to try it out and see what they thought. And some of them thought it was kind of really weird and odd, but quite like me. And other people thought it was just very strange and they didn't want anything much to do with it. How did you feel about it? Oh, I think it's quite useful. I think if we carried on the work, it would have been a really good jumping off point for creating a digital immortal. Hmm. is why we then got interested or I got interested in this idea of the digital immortal so I said to my colleague David Burden at Dayden well can we can we create something to leave behind because from where I'm sitting most of the stuff that you see online is all smoke and mirrors true and there's all sorts of very very strange different variations of things but most of them when you really look at them is about kind of leaving your stuff behind or there's the terraform movement where you can leave all your data and when they re-energize you through cryogenics they can put your data back in your head <laughs> so it, it does feel a bit star trek i guess but it's not very real okay so we then decided wanted to look into digital immortality as we then called it and see what was around and there are all sorts of things like grief bots and dad bots but again in reality, they're quite basic things, and they're kind of useful. 
I think what's become more interesting is digital afterlife, which I think is a more accurate portrayal of what's actually going on at the moment. Right. So a digital immortal has this sense of, you know, they're going to be there forever. They're immortal, which with the best will in the world, you can't be unless you really think in 42 years time, when I will be dead and you'll probably just be old, (laughs) (laughs) that whether you think that your chatbot or your, your agent or your immortal can learn So you can't really be immortal unless you can learn after death. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. So for people then who don't know what we mean when we when we say digital immortality, I mean, I've done, you know, a little bit of layman's research into this and, you know, my understanding of it is probably very (laughs) incorrect uh, and patchy. Um, But it's my understanding based on some interviews I've seen with scientists and I think I've seen mirrored in your work as well, is this idea that it's possible to download and digitize the contents of someone's brain. And I don't know if we're still in the realms of just theorizing this at the moment or whether it's actually moving towards being possible but then the theory was that you could re-upload that person's brain essentially in a digital form into some kind of communicative device like an avatar perhaps or um, a chatbot or a hologram or something like that uh, whereby in the future a person could go and actually have a real-time conversation with a deceased relative who essentially is not deceased because their, you know, their their brain and their personality and everything, the contents within their brain is still very much alive and in a, in a in a kind of immortal digital form. Is that what we're talking about when we talk about digital immortality, or are we talking more about the preservation of a person's digital assets that were acquired during the time that they were alive? Well, it, it's both, and I don't think it's possible to download somebody's brain onto a computer now or even after they die. What you can do now is you can download memories, texts, photographs, images, conversations that you've had with them, like interviews. And certainly that's what's happened with the dad bot, that before his dad died, he did lots and lots of recordings with his dad Hmm. and then created Uh, a copy of his dad based on those recordings. So it's really the current situation we're in is where if you want to create some kind of digital immortal, mostly it will be based on memories before people die. Right. So all the stuff about re-energizing and having an avatar, yeah, you can have an avatar, but it will still only be based on the memories. It won't be because there is not sentience. We haven't got sentience, so it can't work. So that's the shortcoming of it all. Got you. Right. That clears it up. Yeah. I was really confused by that because my father recently passed away. And in listening to interviews with scientists talking about this topic and, you know, all the things that I've read, it got me imagining whether, you know, if we lived in the future and I was able to go and load up his digitized immortal version of himself through some kind of avatar, one, would I want to do that? And secondly, it wouldn't be him as a person then. It would be him frozen as he was in time in a digital form. Is that right? So, for example, if I, you know, if, if in this imaginary hypothetical situation, if I was to ask my, my father's avatar, you know, in 10 years time, what he thought of, you know, the news that day, he wouldn't have an opinion because his brain and his memories and his personality and his opinions and his thoughts on everything would be time locked into the time that they were digitized and everything 
prior to that but he would have no as you say sentience of anything that happened after that point so he wouldn't really be a thinking sentient alive human being it would be a souvenir of a person that he was no i mean certainly when we've created bots in virtual worlds and we said to the students so you can ask them about the latest research on this you know, they we would have got um, RFID feeds behind them so they could respond according to the current news. Now, you could technically do that with your dad and it would sound like him, but it, it would still be not your dad because all he's doing is using his voice to right. tell you news. Right. So there's a lot of tricks you can do to make it look like that, but they are tricks. It is dupery, ultimately. Do you see there being any capacity for that to change as you know technology gets more advanced and as, be- as artificial intelligence becomes more powerful? I mean, once you've got the input data of a person's personality and memories and opinions and thoughts, do you see it being a possibility in the future of artificial intelligence or algorithms of some sort being able to use that raw input data in a way that they can generate something resembling sentience? I think that's what's already really happening in, in some of the different companies that are, are starting to do that. But it isn't really any more than algorithms. Right. So it is just really kind of clever machine learning behind somebody because artificially intelligent beings don't actually have sentience yet. Right. Nor, nor are they likely to for a while. Right. Okay. And the other thing that you mentioned was about lefty behind artifacts. I mean, that's why I shifted away from the term immortality to afterlife, because it it includes much, much more, because people do leave behind their photos and their musics, which is deeply problematic. And we haven't got any laws to manage all of this stuff. So, you know, I don't know if your dad left his passport words behind or access to his photos and whether he told you before he died, which is technically illegal. You know, oh, really? Oh, really? Yes. oh, yeah. It's all, it's all quite a mess, really, in terms of what's allowed and disallowed and what people know and what they don't know. And largely people don't have any kind of digital will associated with, with what they leave behind. Well, same here. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, my father was ill for quite some time and he was cognizant for, for, for most of his journey. So he, we did have the difficult conversations. You know, he did, he did work very hard to put a lot of safeguards in place and to make sure that he covered as many bases as he could. Um, so yeah, I do have all of his passwords and he's given us access to all of his, you know, music collection and his hard drives and things like that and his photo collection and stuff. At no point did we ever talk about, you know, a digital will or, and at no point did any of us consider that him giving us his music collection or his downloads or his you know photos or anything was in any way illegal you know with regards to his online presence you know his social media accounts and anything that he's got any websites or anything like that again because the digital part of somebody's life has not become a normalized part of the end of life conversation for us as a society yet so is this completely uncharted territory at the moment um, a lot of it is they're trying to sort it out. In the edited collection that I did with Victoria Mason Robbie um, on digital afterlife, there's a couple of chapters on the legal side of it in there which are really helpful. But I think one of the things that's quite interesting is that there are things that are okay. So as long as he'd left his passwords in his will and he didn't give them to you beforehand, that's kind of okay. But things like um, if his music collection was bought and kept on his computer 
and it was all digital downloads, for you to now have them would be classed as not legal. Right. So there's quite a bit of case law about people that have fought for that. And there have been also quite a few incidents where people have left their tablet behind but haven't left any passwords. Right. And Apple have not allowed them to access the photographs in the cloud. Mm, that's interesting, yeah. So because of that, you know, it does need sorting out and it is, is a mess. But, I mean, there are all sorts of other environmental things like the trouble with leaving dead people behind on Twitter and Facebook is the amount environmental impact that they're having. Right. They're being contained on service in, I don't know, California or somewhere. Yeah. Creating more heat. Of course, yeah. And there was an incident where Twitter said they were going to take off all the dead people out on Twitter and there was a huge outcry and then they put them all back on again. Yeah, it's a strange one, isn't it? I've never really considered this before. I mean, I do remember reading something recently which blew my mind. It was a, a statistic about um, deceased profiles on Facebook and how many millions of them there were and how uh, pretty soon I think that the, the number of dead profiles on Facebook is going to out, outnumber the living, which is insane. But at the same time, I mean, my father's social media profiles are all still online and there is a strange kind of comfort that I get from knowing that that's still there. You know, in a weird way. So I kind of get it. But at the same time, there is going to come a point, surely, when these tech companies just aren't going to be able to maintain that amount of dead content, for want of a better phrase, on their, on their platforms, you know. But I'm really surprised that we're not further down the line with that conversation yet. Yeah, but it's kind of to their advantage. I and mean, it's a lot of work to take it down. But I think the other interesting thing that goes with the tweets and Facebook is, is that there's a whole new language associated mm. with how we speak to the dead. And there's been, particularly through COVID, a huge change in the way that media has started to interfere with rituals and practices. So people talk about their loved ones. They talk to their loved ones on Facebook. They speak to them if they're angels. They ask them to pray for them. And then you get the bizarre situations where in funerals now, that the funeral directors are becoming the media stars who are directing the proceedings rather than the priest. So there's some really odd things that have gone on recently, which introduce questions about, well, where is the sacred in this? <laughs> where are the dead in cyberspace? Fascinating. Do, do you have any opinions or thoughts on how this could be tidied up? <laughs> well, I think, I think, the dead on in social media spaces, the only way forward would be to delete them. But people are really unhappy with that. I can understand that as somebody who's, like I say, been through that recently. And it's obviously it's all of their content, their videos, their pictures, you know, their thoughts, their opinions. It is almost a part of them, isn't it? It's their, it's their digital projection. Well, it's, a, it's, it's a digital legacy. Yes. But surely right. you can just download it all if you really wanted to. Well, yeah, I mean, you can download the photos and things like that and the videos, but I mean, if there was an app, and I'm sure there probably is, um, or a function within the platforms themselves whereby you could download the entire news feed, you know, all of the, you know, posts and comments and things like that, then that would be quite a cool little digital keepsake, I think, of a person's, as you, as you described it, digital legacy. And then it would give the platforms the ability to clean out all of these kind of redundant profiles, you know. So if something like that doesn't exist, then it most definitely should, I think. But jumping forward, say, 50 years, given that 
our digital lives are now so important to us and most of us spend more of our lives in the digital realm than we do in the physical realm. Do you see a situation whereby in 50 years, perhaps digital reality will be seen as more real than physical reality? I think it already is. I mean, the author, Sherry Turkle, is very critical of this. And she cites an incident when she was on a boat with her daughter and her daughter was, I don't know, how old, eight or something, and had been in virtual worlds and stuff. And she put her hand in the water near the fish and said to mum, mum, this is really real. (laughs) And you do hear people saying, oh, this is really real, about the real. Yeah. So interesting questions about, I mean, it goes back to the matrix, doesn't it? What is real? You know, we're all in a computer program because in a way we are. And the question is, just because it's on a computer, does that mean it's not real? Which, again, has had interesting questions about um, I've been doing some work with the Church of England on running online services and lots of discussions about, well, where is God? (laughs) If you're doing a service on Zoom. (laughs) (laughs) Is God in the computer? Well, actually, of course he he, she is. Right. You know, where else would God be? God is in the machine. So, I mean, I just think it's some, I think there isn't a real and an unreal anymore. It's all, I, for me, there is no digital and non-digital. We are post-digital now. What do you mean by post-digital? I mean that everything has merged together. You can't distinguish between what is digital and what isn't digital anymore. You know, even if you go into the garden with your phone, it'll tell you what your plants are. Mm. So post-digital is more a kind of meshing together, more a sense of what we're dealing with is now ungraspable. We can't make sense of it anymore because everything's merged together. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And I I guess that given that we are living in such a content-heavy world now and we're on a global scale, all of us are bombarded every second of every day in all of our senses with content to make sense of constantly. It's inevitable that we then have to use technology in order to navigate that world that our dependence on technology has actually created for us. Like our brains have not evolved to be able to navigate that in the environment that we live in now. You know, we've evolved to survive out in the wild, you know, and given that we now have a device in, on our person <laughs> at all times, you know, which is listening to our every passing conversation, it's monitoring our every search and our every fleeting desire or whatever. I suppose by hook or by crook, we are essentially functioning as a hybrid entity already. Yeah, I mean, I don't think our brains are adapted or being changed by it particularly. I mean, there is some debate on that. But I think we also, one of the things I often say is that we do have choice. You know, we can choose to leave our phones behind when we leave the house. We can go on holiday and turn our phones off. You know, we, we can choose to go for a walk without our phone. So I think the thing that people often forget is that our dependency is a choice. Right. And I think it is a dependency. And I, I think it's important to remember that. Well, when I think about turning off all of my devices and just putting them in a drawer, you know, the, the overwhelming feeling that I feel immediately is one of immense relief. You know? Whereas a lot of people will feel stressed and anxious. Yeah. You know, they get stressed because they can't find the phone or they've left the phone behind or they've dropped the phone or they've yeah, broken yeah. the phone. You know, they get very stressed about it. And I suppose it's because of that difference between 
exactly to what you alluded to earlier, what, what is real? What is your reality? For some people, you know, their Instagram world and the connections they make there, even if they've never met these people in person or anything like that, that is their true reality. And the physical reality of walking around during the day and going to work and stuff like that is almost kind of secondary to the, the online projection of the digital reality that they live in. Yeah, and yet within all of that, there is such lying and deceit going on. True. Fake people and fake news, you know, and that's also part of our lives, that a lot of that is not real. Yeah, well, social media, I think, you know, definitely when it had its heyday, it certainly had a, a strong people power democratizing element to it, which I liked, an anarchic element to it. You know, you saw it being of use in, you know, things like the Arab Spring and uh, police brutality cases and things like that. Suddenly it was almost like everybody now had the powers of surveillance and mass communication, you know, which I'm all for. But then gradually that power has been diluted and stolen away and corrupted and infiltrated by, you know, the powers that be government agencies and, you know, marketing agencies and things like that. And, and you, we saw it in the extreme around the time of the Trump election. You know, and you had these Russian-based agencies working out of Ukraine, funded through London or whatever, you know, whose job it was basically to infiltrate conversations on places like Twitter and Facebook and just basically argue and set people off against each other, spread disinformation. So instead of the traditional means of propaganda, social media became the tool of propaganda. And it's so insidious because we don't notice it because it just slides in and out of the conversations that we think we're having amongst ourselves and we're not anymore. Yeah, and, and at the same time, you've got all sorts of other strange practices like virtue signalling and digital pillorying and, you know, scapegoat ecology where what the public do to each other in media spaces to just, you know, if your political opinion or you drive a 4 by 4 which I don't, choose not to, or you behave in a particular way, you can be victimised sure. on the internet yeah. because of the choice you've made. So it it's not a particularly kind world uh, in a lot of these media spaces. Yeah, well, I had Dan Gardner on the podcast a while back, you know, the author of uh, the book Risk. And he writes a lot based on the work of Daniel Kahneman, you know, to do with our uh, cognitive biases and behavioral characteristics and things like that. And he was saying something that was fascinating. He said that if you get a group of people together with, with varying viewpoints, they will tend to all converge and settle in one part of the opinion spectrum. And studies have shown that that point of convergence where they all settle in agreement is always at the extreme end. It's almost as if groupthink kicks in and we amplify each other towards the extreme end of things. And it's been proven in studies that this happens in social dynamics, but it's proven also that it also happens online, in social media, which is, which is crazy. Yeah, because it makes us feel good that we're better than the people who drive four by fours or whatever it is that we disagree with. You know, it <laughs> yeah, is. Yeah. Well, given that we're stuck with this now, though, I mean, what is the answer? You know, given that artificial intelligence or even artificial sentience will be so superior to what our seemingly basic evolutionary physical humanity is capable of. You know, are we doomed now to rule by robot or is there some way that we can actually turn things around and bring this technology back into the service of humanity and the planet? You know, are we at a crossroads right now? I don't think we're particularly at a crossroads. I mean, we've created this stuff. I think we've gone past the point of no return. Hmm. But I mean, I think there's some amazing films that you can look at, whether it's iRobot or the novel The Afterwife, or the one that people quote a lot is Black Mirror. 
And it just, I think it does show us the kinds of futures we're going to be heading towards. Right. But I don't think people are interested in actually doing anything about it. And certainly our legal system is trying to do stuff. I attend the House of Lords Select Committee on Artificial Intelligence, and there's a huge awareness of the difficulties that we're facing. But the right. focus in the wider populace tends to be, particularly in the States, more on the worries around self-driving cars, hmm. the fact that we might turn into sentient beings online and kill somebody. So why is that then? I think education, really, at a young age, it, it worries me in a way that I probably did the same, that you see parents carers in the park with young children on their phone at six months old. You see children in looking at newspapers trying to move the picture yeah. to move it on to the next picture. You have a reduction in conversation. You know, people go out for dinner and they don't talk to each other. They talk to whoever's on their phone. Yeah. So there's this sense of absent presence going on. Right. And I just think there are not enough questions being asked. You know, we've got the office for students trying to fix grammar and spelling in universities instead of inter introducing questions about, well, what does learning mean in these spaces and how do we raise awareness of improving communication or fake news or helping students to understand what is reliable information and how to be critical, how to think through the issues rather than being either scapegoats or yeah. changed by somebody else's extreme view. I think we need to be more critical, but in a, a positive way. You know, the real mean of criticality, not yeah. criticizing somebody, but actually taking a stance towards some of these difficult issues. Well, that's interesting because you're a professor of education and everything you just said then about the education system, I 100% agree with. So given that you're in a position of influence there, what is the actual barrier to the education system being changed? The government. Right. The difficulty we've got is we've got people in government who make decisions about education when they're not educated in, in the field of education. I'm a higher education researcher. I'm not an early years or reception or primary or secondary teacher. I'm, my, my research has always been at the university level. But when you think about the imposition that the government has on the way universities are run, the what is taught in schools, there is no sense of freedom for the teachers to be the professionals that they are right there's too much interference so you have things like sats and you have things like government inspectors coming in to check that things are being taught in the right way but it doesn't give any sense that the teachers are professionals who know how to teach right and equally we have this thing called the research exercise, which began as something called the research assessment exercise and has changed uh, into the research excellence framework. And what they're basically doing is they're checking how good our research is. You know, so again, it's too much interference. It always comes down to the bloody government, doesn't it? Every conversation I have on this podcast, regardless of the issue, always comes down to the fact that the government is about 50 years behind the rest of us. I know. I know. It's just no, just no idea. That's crazy. It must be so frustrating for yourself as well. Yeah, it is. I mean, that's probably why I write such a lot, because right. it's a way in a book they can't, can't stop you saying stuff. <laughs> you know, I can be critical in a book or an article. I can take a view. I can have a stance about the issues. 
And I can say, you know, this is not good enough. We shouldn't be doing it this way. And thankfully, you know, I have been asked around the world over the years to to talk about this stuff. So it does have resonance. You know, I say we need to stand up. We need to fight. We need to believe in our profession and the fact that we should have a voice in university. I mean, for me, the other thing is I don't know why university management systems don't stand up and say, no, we're not doing this. Right. Because we should be. But it seems to me with, with everything changing so fast and with technology racing ahead of us at the speed that it is, physical services and jobs are going to become more and more redundant. We're seeing that already. It seems to me that in terms of education, we would be far better suited coming out of school with an ability to, like, as you said, think critically about things, to be creative, to understand how to think and how to navigate the world rather than basically priming us to get a a useful job in a world that is very quickly becoming redundant. I think the more generalized skills, such as, as you said, being able to think critically, to be able to adapt and to be creative, I think that would, they would be far better skills to arm people with in in the world that we're moving into. Would you agree with that? Yeah, completely. I've got um, two young people. One, she's just finished criminology degree and the other one's doing a computer science degree. And they both came out of school and, you know, it was to do with filling in job application forms or doing right. something. They said, why don't they teach you this stuff at school? You know, and my son even sent me a video that had been done, which was a really funny video about all the things they got taught at school and all things that were useless. Right. <laughs> you know, and, and I agree because, you know, I, n- I never had a use for 2 PR until I started to bake and I realised that actually it was useful for putting the marzipan on the Christmas cake. <laughs> well, you know, that's, that's a noble skill. It is now, yeah, but it's useful. But, you know, it is about how do we get people to apply the stuff that they're learning? Yeah. People fail because they don't understand what the point is. Yeah, it's really worrying, man. And when you see the power that these mass tech companies are gathering as well and with all of our data and the the ability to manipulate and to literally control us as we kind of walk blindly into a future that we are going to be very very ill-equipped to to survive you know it is a real concern and most people aren't even aware of this you know it's crazy but to loop it back to uh, the start of the conversation you know i am heartened to know that the digital immortality as i understood it at the start of the conversation is is not and <laughs> anywhere near the uh the realm of possibility just yet the idea of immortal sentient beings stamping around the world as giants you know never dying <laughs> kind of freaked me out and as i said at the start you know these trillionaires i know that they want it man you know because you know one day you go maniacs but also you know the fear of death and that existential turmoil that we carry throughout over all of our lives is very much a defining part of the human condition isn't it yeah but for me, our mortality and the finite nature of life and everything is part of what makes life worth living. Is what makes you fight for something, you know, because the clock is ticking. And I think that's a beautiful thing. I think uh, an, a, an acceptance of one's mortality is, is a very beautiful and powerful thing. So I'm glad at least that with all the things that we've just mentioned considered, that we're not also racing towards a future of, um, you know, immortal trillionaires. Yeah, and it's interesting when you, I interviewed people for a research project and I asked people if they would want to leave a copy of themselves behind. And a few of them said they would, but largely the view was now, why would I want to leave a copy of me behind for my family? Why why would they want more of me? (laughs) (laughs) True, yeah. (laughs) I want to be gone. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, the sort of people that would want to live forever are probably the sort of sociopaths we wouldn't want to have around, you know? 
Well, yeah, can you imagine? Copy of Donald Trump, no thanks. <laughs> you see, you mentioned a sociopath, and what's the first thing that pops into everybody's mind? <laughs> You know, that dude would be all over this as well, man. You know, he'd be like, oh, great, I can run for president, you know, like, <laughs> till the end of time. <laughs> oh, God, can you imagine? So, um, yeah, so please reassure us then on that note, um, that this digital immortality gig, whilst very real and happening, yeah. does not mean sentient, thinking, intelligent beings walking around the world for all of time. And any claim at developing true sentience is not going to be happening anytime soon. No, I don't think so. Not not for forty years or so. I mean, as I said, there's some clever dupery. You can you can. They did it. At, I think the UN they had Sophia, who was a a robot that they programmed behind, and they pretended that she was you know fully sentient, but actually she wasn't. Because again, it's smoke and mirror. So there are lots of clever things you can do to make things look real, but actually they're not. Right. And that's what I think people have to be careful. You know, there was a thing on Microsoft, I think, of a few months ago where they said, oh, they could clone people. And I thought, well, you could kind of clone people, kind of copy them, but you can't make them sentient. So whenever you look at the websites, and there are lots that offer you that ability, you know, you can pay to have yourself uploaded, but there's no guarantee that you can be downloaded into anything sensible anytime soon. <laughs> So what kind of information can be downloaded and digitized from the human brain? And I think I remember you saying memories was one of them. Is there anything else? Well, yeah, I mean, anything. Well, my memories, if I spoke it all in um, now, my voice could be used. My photographs, my stories, my diaries, you know, all of that could be. What you could do is you could take all the information from my past and then you could do a copy of my voice and then you could turn all my memories and stories into just that, a digital copy of myself. Right. At different ages, you could do it all. But only going backwards. Yeah. Well, and forwards. I'm still here. Of course, yeah. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. But, uh, yeah, no, I still think. I mean, what, uh, David Burden and I, who wrote a book called Virtual Humans, we book, launched the book. And even then, this was some five years ago, I think, we both still said that we both felt that sentience was about 40 years off even then. So I don't think it's near. Do you think it's possible? Oh, anything's possible. Look where we are now. True, you know, when, true. I was, <laughs> when I was a child, we didn't have a television. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> Look where we are now. So, yes, I'm sure it will be possible. I'm sure. I'm glad I won't be here when it is. That's scary. Yeah, that's scary. Because then you're looking at, you know, what are the rights? What are the rights of people? And how do you decide about what robot rights are? And who makes those decisions? Yeah. And at that point, we've, we've, we've surpassed the human being. We're, we're something else at that point. Yeah. And I mean, to some extent, all the... I mean, people are already trying to join themselves with the machines anyway. Right? Yeah, yeah. Chips and ears and all the rest of it to themselves. I don't know. I think the question will soon be, what, what is a human? Right. But again, I don't know if you've seen these. Um, it's in Spain somewhere. They call it the block. The guy who's got ears on his head and somebody else, who, I can't remember what else they've grown, but things they've grown onto themselves to adapt themselves to make themselves kind of differently human hmm, no i haven't seen that so is that like a, an attempt at some kind of human slash technology hybrid yeah it is so the problem is that 
they have trouble getting through airports and stuff because, you know, the, these things are built. One of them's got a sort of like a microphone that's built into his brain because he's colorblind and it comes out of his head and across in a sort of long stool. Jesus Christ. But it's completely attached to him so that it had to be surgically inserted. So if he wants to travel, he has to, you know, has to get proper clearance to get through the airport because this thing is is actually embedded in his brain. That's mental, man. Like my initial gut reaction when hearing stuff like that is to kind of pull back and think like, oh, hang on a second, like we're, we're meddling with our brain now. You know what I mean? Like that, that is going into dangerous waters. But the truth is that there's probably tons of medical benefits to, the, to this technology and to the coming technology as well. So outside of that, do you see any other benefits to us having this technology? You know, I mean, we've talked a lot about the negative and the worrying sides of it, which, which are both very real. But are there some positives to this stuff as well? Well, this is where you have to decide what, I mean, a pacemaker is a piece of technology, isn't it? True, So it's to do with this. I was talking to a really interesting guy from the University of Ghent who's kind of doing sort of some different taxonomy of these different additions. Because when I was working at Coventry University, the the professor Kevin Warwick put a chip in his wrist, which could, I don't know, open his fridge or turn his heating on or communicate with his wife. And then people have gone on from that to adapt their bodies for performance art. Hmm. And certainly the guy with the, the antenna coming out of his head, I think he's colorblind and it enables him to feel colors. Right. So I think there are lots of medical benefits, but I think they're kind of hidden. Well, I can see that probably changing, you know, as human machine hybrids become much more the norm, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think so. I mean... You know, artificial limbs, they're all getting, you know, more interesting in terms of what you can do. And, you know, so there are some great benefits to to the use of technology in this way. But um, I think, you know, there are some very interesting areas. And because I'm really into death rather than the living at the moment. Right. I haven't really looked at that for some time. But, I mean, there is some very interesting research in this area, which is really robotics more than artificial intelligence. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Well, I think it's more the artificial intelligence and the meddling with your brain thing that that concerns me the most, I think. I mean, you know, functional use of technology, you know, great. But when our brain and our means of perception and logic and understanding and thinking and making decisions for ourselves is manipulable, I think it's game over. So I'm glad that you said that we are far, far away from that point just yet. Yeah. Well, I hope we are. So what can people do then? I mean, you, you, you said earlier that most people don't know enough or anything at all about these issues, and that is really worrying because they should. So anyone who's just listened to this, this conversation today and goes delving into these uh, subjects and goes looking through your books and your articles on your website and everything like that and, and educates themselves on this issue, what can they do after that point? Because, you know, we're up uh, against a behemoth of big tech and clearly no regulation or anything around any of these, these related issues. So what can we do? Where, where do we start in building the defense against what seems to be an unstoppable momentum? I think I would start small. I think things like creating a digital will, finding out the provenance of your music collection, when you can leave it behind, making decisions about um, whether you do want to leave a digital copy of yourself behind, which you could quite easily do yourself. There are companies that help. 
making decisions about do you want to have an online candle for people to light? Do you how what do you want to have in terms of do you want to have a QR code on your gravestone after you die? I mean, I think some of those things are worth thinking about. I think in terms of the impact, I think if anybody's really interested, I think getting communities together to think about it um, in terms of workshops to discuss it. I mean, again, I've had a platform within the Church of England to to talk about that. And certainly I'm increasingly asked to run workshops on dealing with the digital and getting people to think about it. So I think a lot of it is just thinking about, well, do you have your phones at the table right. or not? Right. Do you have family meals? Do you leave your phone behind when you go out? Do you turn off your computer and it's complete with its camera yeah. at night so you're not tracked? Do you turn your tracking off when you're traveling? Some of these are really simple, but they do prevent us being tracked and traced and followed and our data used. Think yeah. about what you click on. Those things are a good start. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, basically just taking control of your digital life on, on a basic day-by-day basis. Everything that you just said then are things that I don't do and I could easily do, which would make a massive difference. I suppose it's about just becoming a little bit more savvy to where we're heading and where we're at and getting involved a bit more. Yeah, I mean, when we have people around for dinner, generally they don't have to bring their phones to the table. But if they do, we just say, oh, really sorry, we don't have phones at the table. Right, right, okay, yeah. You know, because this it's about conversation. Yes. Taking it back to the human. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And what are you working on currently then? I, I read on your website, I think that you're working on four books. <laughs> Is that right? Um, well, I've just finished the one on post-digital theologies. So that's all being dealt with at the moment. I'm finishing a book on displacement stories, an edited collection, which is about people's stories of apartheid or adoption or Japanese internment or those kinds of stories displaced in different countries, moving from one to the other. So that's a a, a kind of global collection. I'm doing a new book on problem-based learning online, which is problem-based learning is where I started and what my PhD was about. And actually uh, working with a a colleague who's just finished a PhD in this area, so working with her on that. But my new book that I'm really interested in, it's rather hurting my brain to write, is called Post-Digital Learning for a Changing University. Oh, wow. And it's really trying to take on Things like digital scapegoating, absence and presence, the way learning is designed within universities, thinking about it in the context of the digital world, post-digital world. That sounds amazing. It sounds like it actually covers a lot of what we've dipped into today, you know, the educational system and the uh, the post-digital world. Yeah, man. Let me know when that one comes out because I'll be all over that one. <laughs> Do another interview then. Yeah, I, I probably won't be able to understand a lot of it, but, but I'll certainly give it a go. <laughs> so where can people follow your work? Because you've got tons of literature online. You're, you're clearly a prolific worker and a prolific writer. There's tons of stuff on your website. Is that a good place for people to check you out? What's, what's the, um, where, where can people find you? Most of my articles are on the website. Um, there are a few talks hanging around if they Google me. They're probably a bit old now, but there's some uh, stuff on there. Or, yeah, feel free to contact me at University of Worcester. Email me and ask me. I'm happy to share articles or have discussions. Oh, you've opened the floodgates now because now you're going to have every you know, 
tech geek in the world sending you emails about robots and stuff. <laughs> but for people who have listened to this, and obviously we've tried to cover as many different aspects of, of these areas as we can, you know, they are very um, complex and detailed. And there is obviously, you know, a much deeper level to this stuff if you want to delve further into it. And if you're going to do that, I would definitely say that check out Maggie's um, writings online. And her website is at maggiesavinbaden.wordpress.com. And I'll put the uh, the link in the description as well so you can click straight through to it. I would recommend everybody to do that because there is tons of well-researched, well-argued and well-presented information on all of these things that we've, we've dipped into today. And at the very least, please do Maggie a huge favor and myself and all of the future of humanity. Please stop taking your phone to the dinner table and start turning the goddamn thing off when you go out for a drive or when you go to sleep at night absolutely that's a good starting point and a good ending point i guess <laughs> oh maggie i promised i wouldn't keep you longer than an hour we were literally on the minute so thank you so so much for your time i really appreciate you you've blown my mind and inspired me to to research further into this stuff best wishes with everything thanks for all the great work you're doing and sharing with us all and hopefully we can have another chat again soon yeah my pleasure and thanks for asking me james Thanks, Maggie. Speak to you again soon. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye. Man, my brain hurts. <laughs> my brain hurts, but in a really awesome way. I feel like that was a conversation that probably could have gone on for about six hours because I could have just pulled it this way and that way and asked like a gazillion more questions. But uh, it's probably better that I didn't, I think. <laughs> Already, there's like a decade's worth of stuff to delve into there if you're interested. You know what I mean? And man, that is such an interesting field of work to spend your life involved in you know it must be so much fun if you know if if like maggie you've got a passion and a talent and an expertise in those areas it must be so cool to get to like study it and you know experiment and write about it you know i always wish that like i had the um intelligence and the talent and you know the mathematical ability <laughs> to become a scientist or something and i know it's always, it's always got it's a bit like being a musician it's got a kind of romantic imagery attached to it you know the mad professor in the lab you know with uh, all sorts of like pioneering groundbreaking world-changing experiments happening all around you but i'm guessing that just like being a musician that romantic imagery is probably um wholly inaccurate you know people think that being a musician is like the most awesome job in the world but mo most of the time you know you just spend your time hanging around waiting for stuff <laughs> i'm imagining that you know being a professor or a scientist is uh, much the same you know you're spending a lot of time you know waiting for stuff to happen that doesn't happen and writing lots of reports <laughs> But I hope you enjoyed that one, man. I really did. I I, I, had, I did struggle in order to, to try and keep up without wasting Maggie's time, in all honesty. So I hope I, uh, you know, managed to shepherd that through okay for you guys. And the other thing I'm struggling with is the fact that it is absolutely scorching heat. And in order to do these recordings, I've got to keep all the windows and doors closed in my studio. Obviously, you know, for sound purposes. So I'm literally melting in my chair at the moment, which is why my voice keeps going all low and sleepy and slurry. <laughs> so without further ado... Please rush off, grab yourself an ice cream and a cold drink and go and check out maggiesavinbaden.wordpress.org. I'll put a link in the description as well so you can click straight on it. Go and check out all of Maggie's amazing work, you know, and do some further research on digital immortality, hybrid humans and all the crazy stuff that's right around the corner. Very, very important stuff. It's not just sci-fi, good fun. You know, it's actually really, really important. And if we're not educated and aware and mature about where this technology is going and who's in control of it, we are doomed. It is going to be like the Terminator movie for real. 
so whilst this stuff is damn good fun, you know, it is a very important area as well to educate yourself on and to, and to empower yourself on. But yeah, it's also damn interesting and damn good fun. So I'm going to clock off now and go and jump into a bath full of ice. Um, I love you guys to bits. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to leave me some stars and some reviews and subscribe and spread the word and share the links and leave comments and all that jazz that I tell you to do every week. But none of you do it, you buggers. But I still love you nonetheless. So have a great week. I shall see you next time. Take care of yourselves. Take care of others. I love you loads. Bye-bye.